day. Countless radio signals float unseen through our airwaves. Many of these originate from the airline industry, the military, police, fire, and rescue. But then there are other signals. Their source is unknown, they're barely detectable, and their message is dangerous. We give you Road Transmissions. Tonight's drama, The Thirteenth Hour, starring J.T. Hosek and M.J. McAdams. It doesn't sound as if the door's ever been opened. Good solid locks, though. More than we ever had in Austin. Plus a deadbolt, and a chain, and a heavy latch. Don't forget about the heavy padlock on the outside. I'm wondering if this neighborhood is as safe as Mr. and Mrs. Fukuda led us to believe. Babe, in this market, beggars can't be choosers. Looks like the Fukudas left some furniture behind. At least we'll have a love seat to sleep on while we wait for the movers to arrive. I think I'll stick with the air mattress. I can't believe they left us high and dry like this. We've always had such good luck with Delray movers. I, I don't know how we'll manage. I swear to God, I've got to be at work on Monday morning. Hey, Calvin, look at this. I haven't seen one of these in a dog's age. What'd you find? An old iPod. Jesus, this looks ancient. That's... that's got to be a first-generation model. It even has a little portable speaker attached. Still works. Wonder if there are any songs on it. Alright, that's enough. You can switch it off now. I can't. Power button isn't working. How is it playing? It looks like the battery's dead. Unplug the speaker. I, I did. We shouldn't be able to hear it, but it's still playing. We all know Friday the 13th is considered an unlucky day, but where did the superstition of this date originate from? Well, I'm Paige, the host of Reverie True Crime, and we're going to dive into why this day is deemed ill-omened. One of the eldest origins is said to come from a Norse myth that took place at a banquet in Valhalla. There were twelve gods at this dinner, but one god, named Loki, was not invited. Not getting an invite was not going to stop him. Loki crashed the party, which made him the thirteenth guest. Loki, the god of mischief, tricked one god, Hodder, who was blind, into shooting another god, Baldur, with a mistletoe-tipped arrow. Baldur was Hodder's brother, and the god of light, joy, and goodness. Historian Donald Dossey declared, quote, Baldur died and the whole earth got dark. The whole earth mourned. It was a bad, unlucky day. Some Christians believed the number 13 to be unlucky because there were 13 people in the upper room during Jesus' Last Supper on Holy Thursday, which fell on the 13th day of the month. This was also the night before Jesus was crucified on Good Friday. This sparked a superstition that having 13 guests at a table is a bad sign that someone will soon die. Friday is rumored to be the day Eve bestowed upon Adam the ill-fated apple from the tree of knowledge, and the day Cain murdered his brother Abel. 
There was also a play that took place in France in 1834, where a character said, quote, I was born on a Friday, December 13, 1813, from which come all my misfortunes. Giacchino Rossini, an Italian composer, took his last breath on November 13th, a Friday. It was said that he, among many Italians, were certain that Fridays were indeed an unlucky day, and the 13th an unlucky number. Thomas W. Lawson wrote a prevalent novel in 1907. The name of the book? Friday the 13th. This story captivated the masses. It was about a broker who used the superstitions around the 13th of Friday to purposefully crash the stock market. Then, of course, we have the slasher horror film Friday the 13th that premiered in the 1980s. In 2003, The Da Vinci Code made its debut. The movie highlighted the capture and arrests of hundreds of members of the Knights Templar on October the 13th, 1307, which was a Friday. The fear of Friday the 13th is so real, millions of people have a true phobia of it called Frigatrisci Dicophobia or Periscovide Cateriophobia. Frigatrisci Dicophobia refers to Frigg, the Norse goddess of wisdom, and Friday is named after her. The Greek words Triskaidikophobia means 13. Periscadive Cateriophobia comes from the Greek word Periscavide, which also means Friday, and Decateri is a way to say 13. The fact that millions of people have this very real phobia, businesses do not do well on Friday the 13th. Airlines especially do not do well because many people refuse to fly on that date. Triskaidikophobia is the fear of only the number 13. You may notice that many buildings such as hotels and hospitals, for example, do not have a 13th floor. Some airports do not have gates that are numbered 13. Is this superstition all in our minds? Have we been conditioned to fear Friday the 13th because generations before us have? Do we manifest bad things to happen to us on Friday the 13th because we think about it, putting negative thoughts into the universe? Or, maybe... Friday the 13th is the unluckiest day of all, and we should all stay inside where it's safe. Except one man, Daz Baxter, did just that in 1976 because he was truly afraid of Friday the 13th. Well, the floor in his apartment collapsed. He plunged down six stories to his demise. Hmm. Well, dear friends, try to stay safe wherever you spend That was weird. Shh. Listen. There's a voice hidden in the static. Good solid locks, though. That's more we ever had in Philadelphia. 
We've never lived in Philadelphia. Austin. I, I meant Austin. Speaking of locks, we've got a deadbolt and a chain and a heavy latch. Don't forget about the heavy padlock on the outside. I'm wondering if this neighborhood is as safe as Mr. and Mrs. Fukuda led us to believe. Babe, in this market, beggars can't be choosers. Looks like the Fukudas left some furniture behind. At least we'll have a love seat to sleep on while we wait on the movers to arrive. I think I'll stick with the air mattress. I can't believe they left us high and dry like this. We've always had such good luck with Delray movers. I don't know how we'll manage. I swear to God, I've got to be at work on Monday morning. Hey, Calvin, look at this. I haven't seen one of these in a dog's age. What did you find? An old boombox. Jesus, this looks ancient. I'm gonna say that thing was bought at Crazy Eddie's in 1984. I don't know what you're talking about. It still works. Alright, that's enough. You can switch it off now. I can't. power button isn't working. How is it playing? There's no batteries. It's not even plugged in. We shouldn't be able to hear it, but it's still playing. Welcome to Brew Crime, the show where we drink brews and talk about crime, conspiracy, or whatever catches our attention. I am JT, and I'm here with... Freddy Krueger. Ooh, he's got the knives and the fingers. <laughs> or is it Jason? No, it could be Jason. I mean, it's up to you, man. You got a chainsaw? Uh, uh, not right now. Chainsaw? Oh, he had a big old... I have a machete. Old... Who had a there machete? Then you're Jason. There you go, Jason. Oh my gosh. It's today Mike. We... <laughs> In case you were confused. It yeah, is Mike. Yeah. And we are here to do a very quick story for Friday the 13th from Rogue Transmissions. And today we're going to be talking about Sam Patch. And I call this the final leap. Born in Pawtucket, Rhode Island in 1807, Samuel Patch was born for mm, limited greatness. He went to school for a <laughs> while, <laughs> but ended up a child laborer at a cotton mill as a spinner. He eventually Ooh. moved to... Yeah. That sounds like fun. It does, doesn't it? So we run around in circles? <laughs> no, his hands probably bled. Um, child labor. That's where you Even... fall down when you run too fast in circles. <laughs> That's usually me. He, he eventually moved to Patterson, New Jersey, where he started his own cotton mill with someone. Uh, they didn't name him. He was an Englishman. That's all they gave me. Why name them? I know. But it's just some business... colonial power, jeez. <laughs> it doesn't matter. The business failed because his partner, not surprising, left with the funds. Ooh. So Patch did the next best thing. He began to jump for purses of money. Jump what, you say? Well, jump over waterfalls, of course. Oh, uh, what did you think I was going to say? Uh, I, I don't know. Uh, the show doesn't deal in hurdlers. So September 30th, 1827, at the age of 20, Patch jumped in front of a crowd that had initially gathered to watch a pre-constructed bridge be placed over the Passaic Falls. That was entertainment those days. And to be honest with you, these days, I'd probably pick that over what else is offered. True, true. But you'd want 15 different views of right? that same thing. Yeah, yeah. So he dodged the constable. Because we had constables then, he jumped 80 feet into the water and the crowd cheered. And during that feat, Patch was just in an undershirt and underwear, not very ladylike Samuel Patch. An onlooker <laughs> wrote, He took a couple of small stones in his hand and went to the brink of the cliff and dropped them off one after the other, and watched where they struck the water down below. Then he walked back a few yards, turned, and took a little run to the brink of the cliff, and jumped off, clearing the rocks about 10 feet. He went down feet first, but with his body inclining considerably to one side, and in this shape he struck the water and disappeared. 
A few Ooh. seconds later, his head bobbed up at the point downstream, and he began paddling for the shore. The crowd gave him a big cheer. At least he didn't get stoned there. Dang! Depends on which stoned. He did True. it three. <laughs> he did it three more times at the falls, and he got popular. Newspapers covered him, calling him, quote, Patch the New Jersey Jumper. Oh my. In August of 1828, he jumped in Hoboken, New Jersey. The jump was almost 90 feet above the water, and five to 600 people were there to watch. He leapt and rose a few seconds later. We don't think that all of his jumps are recorded, but the following season, the country waited for him to announce his jumps, so we're thinking he probably did a good chunk of them. Sounds like it, and also people. Get a life. I know. After two years of jumping ships, masts, and yard arms, pressure increased to make a more daring jump. In October of 1829, he accepted an invitation to jump Niagara Falls. Ooh, that sounds like a bad idea. Yep. Patch was to be <laughs> part of a... Well, it doesn't go the way you think it's going to go. Canadian was, or American Falls? Uh, it's a great question. I'm guessing American, but... And you'll know why in a second, because there was okay. other entertainment than just him. He was going to be part of a series of exposi expositions... Exhibitions organized to attract business to the Niagara frontier... They were going to blast massive parts of rock from the face of the falls with gunpowder. A real crowd pleaser, I'm sure. Ooh. And they were all, yeah, I know. And they were also sending a schooner called Superior crashing over the falls. Patch, though, he was going to be the main attraction. No pressure. But before we get to the jump, let me describe the schooner situation because that was the ultimate boner kill. <laughs> to those above the falls, the ship began to appear quite small but visible. As it neared, its two masts became more visible. It moved swiftly, bouncing violently in the rapids. The masts were torn away with a loud crash. Now adrift without direction, it was carried by the current bouncing over successive rapids. Unexpectedly, it was carried too far from shore, became trapped in the whirlpools, and struck a rock broadside, where it remained, hung up, between Goat Island and the shore. It never went over the falls. <laughs> Anyways, he was set to jump from a 125-foot ladder just below the cliff near Goat Island. The jump was rescheduled when the ladder had a 15-foot piece break off. Oh. Um, so Patch had kind of put together an actual outfit. He now has, uh, it's a mostly white costume with a black tie around his waist. He was a big fan of uh, wet t-shirt contests. Um, he joked that he couldn't jump or he might get wet. Ha ha, ha ha, ha ha. Hmm. I did laugh out loud when I read it because that's my kind of a joke. He jumped. A boat was waiting there to pick him up, but Sam was tricksy. He slipped unseen by the boatmen and crowd and swam to shore. He was finally spotted and the crowds erupted in a cheer. So he made it. Uh, but he wasn't happy with the crowd size, so he decided he was going to do the same thing the next day. Of course. And he did. And he made it. And so, you know, this is the funny part. At some point between jumps, or on the way from Niagara Falls to where he was headed next, and I'll explain that in a second, he found a, quote, begging pet bear in Buffalo. I don't know what this means, but the bear was advertised to jump with him in Rochester, New York at High Falls. This is where he was headed next. And when I explain what he did to the bear, you will find out that the bear didn't jump with him. Okay. So on Friday, uh. November 6th at 2 p.m., Patch stood at the falls. He was standing on a rock ledge. He took the bear by the collar and just pushed it over into choppy water. <laughs> it's a serious WTF moment. The bear struggled, made it to shore, then Patch leapt after the bear. If I was that bear, I'd be swimming to wherever he lands in the water. Right? Right? Ah, he looks like a fish. Hmm. Um, Patch, well, he didn't think uh, enough money was raised, despite six to 8,000 people watching him, so he decided he was going to jump a second time on the following Friday, the 13th of November, 1829. It was cold bum, and damp. Bum, bum. It was cold and damp, but the roads were crowded, and people moved amongst the massive audience, collecting coins for Patch. Patch climbed the pole and looked over the crowd. He took a drink to cut through the cold of November. Mmm, a drink before we go diving. 
He turned to the audience and he said, Napoleon was a great man and a great general. He conquered armies and he conquered nations, but he couldn't jump the Genesee Falls. Wellington was a great man and a great soldier. He conquered armies and he conquered nations and he conquered Napoleon, but he couldn't jump the Genesee Falls. That was left for me to do, and I can do it well. I don't think Napoleon knew about the Genesee Falls. No, probably not. And also, <laughs> what the fuck? Like, what is he going on about? <laughs> Um, most of the speech, the crowd couldn't even hear over the falls, but the motto of Sam Patch was well known, and this made me laugh. Quote, some things can be done as well as others. <laughs> oh my things, god. Isn't that great? It's like, you know what? I'm not gonna, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna under-promise and over-deliver. Under-promise <laughs> and under-deliver. Yeah, yeah, right. So he concentrated... And then he leapt into the air. His usual posture broke, and people said they saw him shift to the side, possibly start flailing for some control. He slammed into the river with an audible smack. The crowd still... Ex there it is. The crowd still expected Patch to come up. Bless their hearts. So seconds passed into minutes, and the crowds realized that Patch... Well, he was probably dead. Boats went looking for him all day and into the evening, and they couldn't find him. Months passed, and Pat was found on St. Patrick's Day the next spring. A hired hand near the mouth of the river broke the ice to water the horses. He ran back to the house and brought back men who placed the body on a sled. The body was identified by the white pants and black scarf around his waist. Oh my. I know. He was buried in the northwest corner of the Charlotte Cemetery, not far from where he was found. His grave was later marked by a wooden board that said, quote, Sam Patch, such is fame. <laughs> oh my. But you know what? Even Nathaniel Hawthorne, the author, wanted to go see where he jumped to his death. He became a part of the folklore of upstate New York. And I'll end with a poem written by Ariel, whoever that is, in November of 1929. Ariel? Come on, she lives under the sea. Well, yeah, I, well, yes. I, so it probably sounded like... <laughs> um, now, last eventful scene. We see Sam at the Falls of Genesee. By invitation here he came, flushed high with triumph, crowned with fame. The day is fair, the crowd is great, the thundering torrent seems to groan that it must human conqueror own. The moment comes, the people cheer and call for Sam. Sam patches here, but why that cloud upon his brow? Sam never looks so strange as now. He gazes down with visage pale, as if he'd pierced the future's veil. He looks around on earth and sky, as though he bade the world goodbye. He takes his kerchief from his neck, and barely can emotion check. Here, Tom, he said, you bear on this to my poor mother, Sam's last kiss. He jumps, he sinks, the waters roar above him, and he's seen no more. And as their breath the people catch, they sigh, alas, brave, foolish Patch. And that is Sam Patch and his final jump. And that's Brew Crime. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. You are listening to Curious Cat, the podcast that examines the shadowy space where science and the supernatural collide. And I'm your host, Jennifer Holtz. Join me every week as I examine what it means to be a soul in a meat suit. Welcome to Curious Cat.
I've been compelled to track this mystery since the first foot washed up on the shores of a Canadian island more than a decade ago. Recently, though, when a doctor professed to solve the mystery once and for all on TikTok, I scratched my head. When I googled the Salish feet mystery, my stomach churned thinking of the people, maybe as many as 21 as of this recording, who passed away and part of them washed up on the coastlines of Washington State and British Columbia. These are real people that lived and died, and in all other tellings of it, that's been missed. There's a cluster of picture-perfect islands, just a hair west of Washington State, the shape of breadfruit. One glance at the map and your brain fits the chain of islands into the greater landmass like a missing puzzle piece. Known as the Gulf Islands, they broke apart and drifted into what is now the Salish Sea, the Strait of Georgia, and the Strait of Juan de Fuca. These islands are lush with old-growth evergreens, wildflowers, high cliffs, sandy bluffs, inlets, and wide-open meadows. They hold secrets, too. Abandoned homesteads, forgotten campgrounds, even the remnants of one long-forgotten cult whose leader died with the knowledge of where he'd buried gold coins in mason jars. That cult leader is Brother Twelve, and the place that may still hide the treasure is Valdez Island. As a crow flies, the Gulf Islands are close to busy urban centers Vancouver, B.C. and Seattle, and just around the horn from fancy regal Victoria, where visitors stroll famous garden grounds and sip tea. Jedediah Island is the largest and most diverse of the chain of over 30 islands. It's a marine park, popular camping, and kayak destination, jokingly referred to as Club Jed because of its luxurious space by residents of nearby Lasquita Island. This special place has never seen a logger saw blade. Once owned by a single family, when it was at risk of being resold, citizens of the U.S. and Canada interceded, buying the entire property, and have made it available to the public for camping, kayaking, and other outdoor activities. Visitors hike through old-growth forests, and at Home Bay, they find an abandoned farmhouse, a herd of feral sheep, and one aging strawberry-colored horse, all remnants of the former owners. On the 20th of August in 2007, a girl was visiting Jedediah Island with her family. As she explored the coastline, she came upon a size 12 Adidas shoe. The white and blue mesh hid the remains of a man's right foot. Most likely manufactured in India four years prior, the foot inside was badly decayed, but forensic experts were able to attain a valuable DNA sample. Six days later, on Gabriola Island, also part of the Gulf Island chain, a couple walking along a popular busy beach trail discovered a man's right foot in a size 12 white Reebok. The shoe was waterlogged. Experts believe it was taken ashore by an animal and believe it might have come from the south. They were able to collect DNA from this foot. This is the second size 12 men's shoe found. The average height for a man, curiously, wearing this shoe size is 6 foot 2 inches, where the average male height in general is 5 foot 10 inches. February 8, 2008, Valdez Island, British Columbia, Canada. Found by two forest workers, this shoe is a Nike Men's 11. This is the third foot found on the Gulf Islands, so it's no surprise this story is picked up by the Toronto Star newspaper. 
At this point, the speculation begins about there being a serial killer or a drug dealer doing the killing. Other theories include boating accidents, an old plane crash hoax, or the 2004 tsunami. Traceable DNA is also gathered from this foot. Investigators tested the DNA of the first two feet and compared it but found no matches. The article says the fact that there are three very similar sets of remains uncovered from one particular waterway is not something we've seen before, said Chief Coroner Jeff Dolan in the Star article. We're not ruling anything out at this point. Constable Annie Linto of the RCMP said investigators are also going through missing persons reports to see if there's any match. She said police don't know yet what connection there is between the feet or whether they're investigating three separate homicides. May 22, 2008, a woman's New Balance size 7 shoe is found on Kirkland Island by a man walking the shoreline. This is the first female. The remains inside the blue and white sneaker were thought to have washed down the Fraser River. They collected DNA and the foot was later identified as those of a woman missing been suffering from depression. June 16, 2008, a man's left foot was found by two hikers floating in Delta on Westham Island, British Columbia. It's the first left foot found, and the DNA matches foot number three, which leads to the identification of the man whose family members say was suffering from depression. Later that same month, a hoax foot is found. Tricksters found an animal paw in a sock stuffed into a running shoe with sea kelp. August 1, 2008, a little shy of a year after the first foot was discovered, foot number six is found by a camper on a beach near Pisht, Washington. It's the first to wash ashore in Washington state and was only 16 kilometers from the international border in the Strait of Juan de Fuca. Testing confirmed the foot was human. The large black top size 11 athletic shoe contained a right foot. Investigators in Washington and Canada agreed the foot could have been carried south from Canadian waters. All told, 21 feet have washed ashore and only a handful have had their identities found. One doctor, though, on TikTok professed in a video to have solved the mystery of the feet washing up on the shores. He says the advent of padded running shoes explains everything. The padding protects the remains from predators and it's buoyant, so the shoes become a life raft of sorts. They can travel many miles, stay afloat long enough to be washed up on a beach. His theory makes sense, but still doesn't explain everything. What happened to the rest of their body? Why are some with trace DNA never linked back to a missing person? And if his theory that this is the new norm holds, then why has there been a gap in years between discoveries and why no feet in the last four years? I think the case is still dripping with mystery, don't you? Thanks for listening to Curious Cat. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Until next time, stay curious. I love you. That was weird. Shh! Listen, there's a voice hidden in the static. Renata?
Yomewa Hachi Jikanes Anatono Yomewa Hachi Jikanes I think I'll stick with the air mattress. I can't believe they left us high and dry like this. We've always had such good luck with Delray movers. I don't know how we'll manage. I swear to God, I've got to be at work on Monday morning. Hey, Calvin, look at this. I haven't seen one of these in a dog's age. What'd you find? An old transistor radio. Jesus, this thing looks ancient. I bet Grandma chewed a rug listening to this thing on the beach at Coney Island. I think you mean cut a rug? I wonder if it'll pick up anything. Still works. Alright, that's enough of that. You can switch it off now. I can't. The switch isn't working. How is it playing? There aren't any batteries in it. You shouldn't be able to hear it. Suicide, serial killers, spree killers, thrill killers, contract killings, honor killings, and a whole lot of other sh- Too heinous for me to list here. If you're disturbed by this sort of content, you may want to listen to something else. And if you're a child trying to listen to our true crime podcast, well, you better ask your mama. today <laughs> you ought to know girl we've been recording all morning so they don't know that well people if you can't tell we've been recording a batch of episodes today we just finished that one about that nut job who killed that poor girl in the sleeping bag oh, oh. Geez, i just i just can't cam i can't get over how many times he that her poor body oh uh, and the photo when the cops unzip the sleeping bag? No. Oh, no. But let's no, no. let's not oh let's not uh well, let's not talk about that right now. Jennifer, don't you have another case for us today? I do. And this one is a bit odd. Hmm. I mean, there's some true crime elements to this as well as some elements that put this case into the paranormal territory. Ooh. So you ready to get into it? Oh, let's go. Calvin and Samantha Gravely were newlyweds. Calvin grew up as an army brat whose family moved from base to base all over the globe, depending on where his father was stationed. He'd lived all over the United States as well as Japan, Germany, Italy, you name it. Yeah, yeah, I know people like that. That's a really hard way to raise a family. It's tough. It's hard on mm-hmm. the kids. Calvin was eager to strike out on his own. After earning a degree in computer science from Virginia Tech, he got a job at an IT firm in, Rich- in Richmond, Virginia where he met his future wife, Samantha Lazaria, or Sam, as all of his friends would call her. Um, She was a yoga instructor from Austin, Texas. After earning her various certifications, she took a year to travel across the country in a conversion van before settling in Baltimore, where she got to work as a yoga instructor, specializing in, uh, and excuse me for these pronunciations, (laughs) uh, Vinyasan Kundala... Kundalini, Janana, s- Janana, Sevenando, and Juva Muni. <laughs> Ju- Jiva Muki. 
uh, uh, these are all various styles of yoga. I, who knew there <laughs> were so many? This is an October oh, podcast, yes. isn't it? Yes. <clears throat> Edward loves to slip these $10 words into his scripts to trip me up. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I will never forgive him for anthropomorphic. I still have problems saying anthropomorphic. Anthropomorphic, <laughs> and don't even get me f- started on the the fuig. Is it not fuig? Fugue. Fugue. It's fugue. Fugue, dear. So I apologize to any yoga enthusiast out there who may be offended on my pronunciation of any of those words. But if you know me, you know me. Sam worked in Baltimore for a while before she decided to open up her own studio in Richmond, Virginia. And this is where she would meet Calvin. It was a perfect love affair. Until it wasn't. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) You see, Calvin and Sam didn't know uh, she, nope. You see, you see, Cam, what Sam didn't know was that Calvin had just broken up with his ex. Calvin's ex-girlfriend was Rachel Fakuda, and she was an extremely jealous woman. And after a 16-month relation and after their 16-month relationship ended, she began a campaign of stalking and terrorizing Calvin and his soon-to-be wife the moment the two started dating. She did everything in the stalker ex-girlfriend playbook. Um, including King Calvin's car, making threatening calls to his employer, and trying to scare businesses away. Nope, and trying to scare business away from Sam's newly opened yoga studio. Which, spoiler alert, she was successful. And Sam had to close down the business that she worked so hard to build. Despite all this, Calvin and Sam were still married on October 2nd, 2022, in a small ceremony. And it seemed that their stalker nightmare had just run its course. But then on the morning of December 1st, 2022nd, Calvin and his new bride woke up. 2022nd? Yeah. 2022nd? You don't know 2022nd? It's my favorite year. (laughs) Well, I'm starting to think, did I? Did that right? (laughs) Like it was making sense for a Just kind of stroking out in a minute. Okay. Okay. But then on the morning of December 1st, 2022, Calvin and his new bride woke up to find 13 stray cats. And warning here, the 13 stray cats were crucified on their front Uh, lawn. What do you mean crucified? Uh, Well, I couldn't find a lot of detail on this. And honestly, I don't really want to go into it much. But from what I gather, the cats were killed, probably drowned or poisoned. And then um, you know how you can get those little lawn stakes at Home Depot? Mm-mm. Yeah, she hammered those mm. along with the cats. Uh, mm. Those lawn. poor baby kitties. I know. She's horrible. Now, it didn't take long to figure out who they suspected of this heinous, heinous act. And they filed a police report and tried to obtain a restraining order against Mrs. Fakuda. But the problem was, Cam, that no one could locate her. And it seemed as though she just disappeared. And so rather than wait around for legal machinery to do its work... Calvin got a job at a company in Sam's old stomping ground at Austin, Texas, and the two packed up their lives and drove halfway across the country. However, they would never reach their new home in Austin due to a fatal car accident. Yeah, let me guess. It wasn't really an well, accident. We'll get there. Hold on. On the morning of Friday, January 13th, 2023. Hey, that's today. The couple's Subaru Outback struck an object in the road in the infamous Fancy Gap section of I-77 in North Carolina. Hold on. 
The car careened through a guardrail on the interstate and fell down a steep embankment. I don't exactly know how steep it was, but the car crashed, killing both the driver and the passenger. Police, while investigating the wreck, found that the car's brake lines showed signs of having been tampered with. Oh, so you think the ex-girlfriend? Yep. Rachel Fukuda, whose whereabouts are still unknown, is heavily suspected in having tampered with the brakes, which surely was a contributing factor in the fatal incident and the fatal accident. Wait a minute. Isn't Fancy Gap near Charlotte, North Carolina? So, like, do you drive through Charlotte to get from Virginia to Texas? Good point. I looked up. I looked it up on Google Maps, and you're right. That's not the most logical path for them to take. And this, okay. So now this, this is where it really gets weird. Later throughout the day, police will discover other similar wrecks involving Subaru Outbacks, thirteen of them to be exact, all in different locations all over the United States, and all of them involved severed brake lines. All of them contain the dead bodies of Calvin and Samantha Gravely. Ugh. So obviously Calvin and Sam are dead, but they just don't know it? That's right, and Calvin doesn't even know Sam's secret, the one medical examiners discovered. Oh, oh, and Sam and Calvin are standing in a haunted house listening to us right now. Oh, hey guys! It'll be interesting to see what happens when they finally get to the box and open it. The one Mr. and Mrs. Fukuda left for them? Yep, that's the one. But they're not the only ones out of time, because this is the end of our segment. Uh, Okay, until next week, remember, lock your doors. And keep passing by those open windows. Uh, Bye-bye. Love ya. That was weird. Shh. Listen, there's a voice hidden in the static. This is all wrong. This isn't the Fukuda's house. This is an abandoned truck stop in the Pacific Northwest. Looks like the Fukuda's left some furniture behind. At least we'll have a love seat to sleep on while we wait on the movers to arrive. I think I'll stick with the air mattress. I can't believe they left us high and dry like this. We've always had such good luck with Delray movers. I, I don't know how we'll manage. I swear to God, I've got to be at work on Monday morning. Hey Calvin, look at this. I haven't seen one of these in a dog's age. What'd you find? An old radio. Jesus. It's as big as my dad's liquor cabinet. Solid wood, too. You'd get a hernia trying to move it. Still works. Alright, that's enough of that. You can switch it off now. I, I can't. The switch isn't working. How is it playing? It's not even plugged in. You have six, 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 six hours.
Most of us are familiar with the tragic tale of Jason Voorhees, the main star of the Friday the 13th movies. If you're not, let me fill you in. When he was just 11 years old, Jason attended camp for the summer, which was run by a bunch of horny, drunk, irresponsible teenagers who were too preoccupied with hooking up to really take care of the campers in their charge. Jason would be treated horribly by both the counselors and campers at Camp Crystal Lake because he had physical deformities and he was mentally delayed. As a result of pure negligence, Jason would drown in a tragic accident at the lake, or at least that's what is believed to have happened. His mother would enact her revenge through a bloody killing spree through the camp while Jason watched, inspiring him to become his own serial killer. All of this would play out on the big screen for us horror fanatics to watch, believing that it was too far-fetched or too crazy to ever happen in real life. That is, until the Lake Bottom murders of Finland, which many people believed reminded them of what happened at Lake Crystal. In June of 1960, four teenagers decided to go on a couple's camping trip. There was Mela Bjorklund and Anya Maki, who were both 15, and their older boyfriends, Seppo Boisman and Niles Gustafsson, who were 18. As you can imagine, the teens were excited to have a weekend away from the prying eyes of their parents so that they could do what young people do, drink, party, and hook up. They decided that they would share one tent so that they had less items to carry with them to their makeshift campsite. Hopping on their motorcycles, they took the short drive out to Lake Bottom, which was known to be a popular tourist destination, particularly for those looking for a scenic and comfortable place to camp. The first day that they arrived, they went swimming and drank beer. That evening, the girls were feeling tired from the day's events, so they decided to turn in a little bit early. They headed inside the tent and went to sleep. The boys decided that they would stay up a little bit later to drink and fish, so they stayed awake for a few hours longer before joining the ladies in the tent. That night, everything would go wrong. On June 6th, a bloody discovery would be made. Two young boys were walking around the area of the lake to do some bird watching when they spotted the tent, which appeared to be collapsing on itself. They noticed a blonde man walking away from the area of the tent, so they kind of shrugged it off, thinking that the man may have just been, you know, setting up his area or maybe taking down the tent. A few hours later, a father and son would be at Lake Bottom fishing when they also spotted the tent in the distance. This time, no one was near the area, and the father was concerned that maybe someone was hurt or had been robbed, so he walked over to the tent to check inside. There, he discovered the four bloody bodies of the teenagers. He grabbed his son and ran back to the town for help. While the man and his son were getting help, a jogger was doing a lap around the lake, and they saw the damaged tent as well. It looked like the poles had been broken, and there was a giant rip on the side. This man decided to poke his head inside the tent, and that's when he also discovered the bloody mess 
and he went to get help too. When the police arrived on scene, they discovered the battered bodies of the four teenagers. Miraculously, one was still breathing, even though he had several gashes to his body and face, and he was bleeding profusely. Niles Gustafson was rushed to the hospital, where he would be lucky enough to survive. His girlfriend and his two other friends were not so lucky. They had been stabbed and bludgeoned to death, with Niles' girlfriend, Mela, receiving the brunt of the attack. She was stabbed hundreds of times and was discovered nude from the waist down. For some reason, this unknown assailant had focused much of his anger and aggression on Mela. It was a disturbing crime scene. Investigators speculated that the murders happened sometime between 4 a.m. and 6 a.m., and that it was a surprise attack. The killer would have attacked them from the top while the campers were still sleeping, destroying their tent. Then they would have stabbed them and bludgeoned them with an unknown object, though the murder weapons would never be found. When the lone survivor of the attack, Niles, recovered in hospital, he was immediately interviewed to find out what he knew. Unfortunately, he had no memory of anything other than seeing a man dressed in black with bright red eyes. That was the last thing he saw before everything went dark. This alone wasn't very helpful to the investigation, so Niles would undergo hypnosis. Using the information Niles provided while under hypnosis, police were able to create a sketch of the suspect. The photo is terrifying. The man in the drawing has intense daggers for eyes that look absolutely menacing. Over 4,000 people were interviewed. However, no suspect was identified. Still, the one name that kept coming up by townspeople was Carl Valdemar, a local kiosk owner. It's alleged that he was an angry, aggressive man who hated campers and tourists. He would quite literally cut down people's tents and throw rocks at them to get them to leave the area. It's also alleged that he would put razor blades and apples and give them to people that he wanted to go away. So much of the town thought that he was so aggressive, he could have done the killings, to the point that police decided to investigate his property. They found a well that had been recently filled in with dirt, and they thought it was kind of suspicious. Maybe he had buried the murder weapons or belongings of the victims. When they looked, nothing was ever found, and he did have an alibi for the night that the teens were killed. His wife had said that he was at home with her. An unoriginal alibi by all accounts, but an alibi nonetheless. In a strange twist, Valdemar would throw himself in Lake Bottom, the same lake the campers slept next to. He would literally drown himself, which is basically an unheard of way to take your own life. He would leave behind a letter that confessed to the killings. As for his wife, on her deathbed, she confirmed that she believed her husband was the killer. He was an angry, violent man who would go to any length to keep tourists away. She said that she had lied about his alibi as he had threatened that he would kill her if she didn't go along with his plan. Sounds like a case closed, right? 
Well, the police weren't so sure, so they basically dismissed it. There would be several other names thrown around the years, but none as surprising as the one in March of 2004, almost 44 years after the slayings. Surprisingly, Niles Gustafsson, the lone survivor of the attack, would be arrested after new forensic tests were done on the shoes that he was wearing that night. The blood of the three victims would be found on these shoes, but there was no blood of his own, meaning the police believed he was wearing the shoes when he killed the three teens. He only injured himself to make it look like he was attacked as well. Niall's girlfriend, Mela, was also the one who was most viciously attacked and the only one who was found nude from the waist down. A witness had described hearing an argument that evening between a man and a woman, so police were now alleging that this is the reason Mela was subjected to overkill. He was angry with her, jealous perhaps. However, there was not enough evidence to back this theory up, so the case against Niles was dismissed. The Lake Bottom murders are still very much unsolved, and the idea that there was a madman walking around the area that evening looking for campers to kill, well, that theory is still on the table. Who was that blonde man that the two boys saw near the tent on the morning that the bodies were discovered? And who is the man in the sketch that Niall claims to have seen right before the attack? Was it random? Was it targeted? We don't know, and we may never know. But one thing is for sure. Camping is at the very bottom of my to-do list next summer. I'm Emma. I'm Tash. And I'm Becky. And we're from Spine Chillers and Serial Killers, the true crime paranormal comedy podcast. And those are not three words you generally put together. But there we are. (laughs) There we are. We did. (laughs) We did indeed. So, girls, what's one of my biggest fears? Orange food. Don't say it ain't true because we know it is. I'm not a fan of the orange food. This is true, but that wasn't the answer I was looking for. Actual fear would probably um, be flying. Yes. Yeah. Flying, flying. And I know that that seems crazy because like who doesn't fly these days, right? I mean, it is mad, yeah. Because actually it's one of the safest modes of transport, isn't it? That's what they say, but it's too high and it's too fast for me. So, so <laughs> I tell no. you what always baffles me about flying, just a little side note, is how you'll be in a plane that's going super, super fast, but then like there's also like a fly that can fly around the plane. That's that's crazy, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> 
You mean a fly inside a flying machine, like an Inception yeah. flying? Okay. Like it's yeah. flying twice. Yeah. yeah. See, I wasn't wrong. It is weird, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. See, it's all wrong. It just defies the laws of physics. It shouldn't be able to fly, and I don't want anything to do with it. I do realize that everybody flies in the whole entire world except me. But would you catch a flight on a Friday the 13th? I'd rather not. I'll be honest. I I wouldn't even think about it. I'd be like, yeah, okay. It wouldn't even cross my mind. Is that the wrong answer? (laughs) (laughs) Well, the passengers of the Uruguayan Air Force Flight 571 didn't give it a second thought. A bit like you, Tash. But maybe, just maybe they should have done. The plane carried 45 passengers and crew and was flying from Uruguay to Santiago in Chile. Most of the passengers were part of the Old Christians Club Rugby Union team and the other passengers were all their family and friends. The inexperienced co-pilot thought he was closer to landing than he actually was and he didn't read his instruments correctly as they were in fact another 60 to 70 kilometers away. But isn't that is, you know, one of those you have one job <laughs> to fly the plane and land it. Yeah, you just had the one job. Okay. But he didn't look at his instruments and he began to descend, resulting in the plane crashing into a mountain in the Andes on Friday the 13th in 1972. Wow, I can see how he did that. Runways and mountains are very similar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, didn't have the same result, sadly. Oh. Three crew members and nine passengers died immediately, leaving several more severely wounded. Apparently, the search planes flew over their location many times, but they couldn't see the white plane against the snow. Oh, yeah, that is unfortunate. It is. It's not the kind of colour coordination you want, really. No. So during the next 72 days... Mm. I mean, that's insane, right? I mean, it's a hot minute, isn't it? The survivors suffered from extreme weather, starvation, and even an avalanche that killed a further 13 people. Oh Oh my God. That's another 13 in there. So how did the others survive so long, you might wonder, with no food? Well. Oh. No. I know what you're going to say. They had to resort to cannibalism. And using pieces of broken glass from the crash, they sliced into the buttocks of their deceased friends and family. And when the meat was gone, they resorted to eating skin, hearts, lungs, and even brains. You shouldn't eat brains. Shouldn't you? No, not not other human brains. You can get um, you can get a disease from it. But anyway, well, I can go into that at another time. <laughs> <laughs> but they did. That's what they did. Yeah. Oh dear. Eventually, two men set off on the impossible task to try and find help after hearing over the plane's radio. So after what I gathered, the plane's radio, they were still receiving messages, but they couldn't send any out. So they heard over the plane's radio that all the searches had been called off. Oh, no. oh heartbreaking. Yeah. So these two guys were like, right, we're the strongest, you know, we'll, we'll go and try and find some help. And it was an intense climb down this mountain. But eventually they found a farmer who got them help and they rescued all 16 survivors. Oh, yes. Brilliant. 16 survivors out of 45. I'm going to say don't fly on Friday the 13th. 
Yeah, maybe not. No. Maybe not. That was horrible. Thank you. <laughs> well, as always, it's always a pleasure. <laughs> Bex, why don't you cheer us up with a bit of bit of murder? I think I'll be doing a few things, but I won't be cheering you up. But oh, damn, damn! I'm still waiting for this happy murder. Never get it. No. Never get it. <laughs> Maybe one day. <laughs> the story revolves around a girl called Brittany Kilgore. That's an unfortunate last name. Yeah, it's mad, isn't it? Oh, I didn't even realise when I was doing my notes. I only refer to her as Brittany after this. In April 2002, she was just getting divorced from her husband of two years, who was called Corey, who was in the army and he was at the time deployed in Afghanistan. So she was packing up her things to move back to Missouri to be with her friends and family. And as you guys know, because you've all moved houses before, moving house sucks. It sucks balls. Yeah. So hard. Yeah. It is apparently one of the most stressful things a human being can go through. I concur. I've moved so much. It's horrendous. Yeah. And also, well, depending on it, obviously it's an individual thing, but um, when you need to move the big stuff, you can need a little bit of muscle. Some friends come in to help with that. Yeah. Brittany knew a guy called Louis Ray Perez, uh, who she met by trance when she was out with a friend. And so she thought, hey, maybe he'll help me move. So she sent him a text and asked him if he would do. And uh, he said, hey, well, sure, if you want, we can go out and talk about it. I've been invited to a dinner cruise and my girlfriend can't come because she's pregnant and doesn't feel up to it. If you come out with me, we'll talk about it and then I'll, I'll come and help you the next day. Brittany thought that was a little bit weird. So she declined in his offer and didn't really know him that much. Also, leaving your pregnant girlfriend at home to go on a dinner cruise. Mm. I think that's why she declined. Yeah, that's weird. Yeah. Louis said to text her if she changed her mind. He later texted her and said, come party with me tonight and you'll have five guys there in the morning to help. Brittany thought on it and decided to change her mind. She really needed the help. On Friday the 13th of April 2002... Brittany borrowed a purple evening gown from a friend and set out on a night out with Louis. He told her to be ready by 7.30, but what Brittany didn't know at the time was that the cruise left at 7 and Louis obviously didn't have tickets. And Louis was also in a dominant, submissive BDSM relationship with his 36-year-old pregnant girlfriend, Dorothy Maraglino. He was the master, well, Dorothy was his mistress, and their roommate, 25-year-old Jessica Lopez, was their slave. So that's kind of what's going on at their house. Okay. It's like, bring out the gimp. Yeah, the roommate is the slave. I can just imagine her crawling around on the floor. I don't know if that's what they really do. And he's, like, the dominant over his two, like, girlfriends. Brittany, I think she had a bit of a funny feeling about it and she sent Louis's number to a couple of her friends saying that she was going out with him. And 10 minutes later, one of Brittany's friends received a horrifying text message just saying, help. Oh, God. And from then, Brittany's friends text her back saying, what, what's going on? Tried to call, she didn't answer. And then Brittany um, eventually texts back saying, hey, I love this party, it's so good. And they're like, pick up, pick up. And she's like, no, don't worry, I'm okay. Her friend group thought it was very suspicious. So what happened to Brittany? So they went to Dorothy's house instead of this cruise. I don't know what he said to her 
to get her to go there, whether he said that he'd forgotten something or whatever. But their house was less than five minutes away from Brittany's house. It's unclear how they got Brittany to get out the car, but what they think happened is this. She was either tricked or physically forced into the home. It's also possible that Perez used his AR-15 assault rifle to threaten her into compliance. Soon after entering the home, Brittany was ambushed, handcuffed and subdued with an electric stun baton. Oh, flip it, neck! The stun baton was capable of projecting up to 1 million volts, making it nearly 20 times more powerful than tasers typically used in law enforcement. That's a bit much, isn't it? Yeah. And you see tasers, people go down straight away. Poor thing. Yeah. Yeah. Brittany was taken to the basement where she was restrained and abused. What exactly was done to her was not known. Maybe this is for the best. But there is lots of circumstantial evidence to suggest that she was tortured and humiliated for quite a long time. Oh my God. Before she was eventually strangled to death. The next day, Britney's friends dropped by and they realised that she never came home. So they reported her missing straight away to the police and gave the police Louis's phone number. Police came and knocked on Louis's door. They saw his car was like full of mud. They discovered a stolen assault rifle in his vehicle. Jessica, the slave, drove to a local hotel where she attempted to commit suicide after writing a confession letter admitting to killing Brittany saying that she acted alone and provided grim details of the torture that Brittany endured, and then she would eventually lead the authorities to her remains at Skinner Lake. Brittany was nude, her body had been doused in bleach, she had ligature marks on her wrists and ankles, and taser marks on her face and neck. There was also a number of post-mortem cuts that appeared to have been made with an electric saw, as if they had tried to dismember her body before giving up. Awful. Yeah. Poor girl. The cause of death was um, strangulation with such force that it actually fractured her neck. Oh, my God. They're animals. Just animals. I know, absolutely. Police were straight on Dorothy and Louis' home, so they found rolls of plastic, a saw blade, a second search of Louis' car, located a plastic bag, gloves, the stun baton, which had Brittany's blood and hair on it, ropes, knives, cleaning products that were purchased the day after the murder, all found in Dorothy's truck as well. So... Also recovered were several journal entries written by Dorothy and Jessica detailing their plans to commit a BDSM kidnap fantasy. They wrote about their desire to torture, kill and dismember someone they hated. As sexual sadists, they found pleasure in inflicting pain and suffering on others. In 2016, Louis, Dorothy and Jessica were all convicted of first-degree murder, kidnapping, torture and attempted sexual battery by restraint. All three were ultimately sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Good. So they're where they belong. Yeah. They can bloody stay there. Poor girl. That's awful. Mm. Awful. She just wanted a bit of help moving her boxes. Exactly. He just preyed on the fact that she needed help to put her in that position. Awful. Poor love. There we are. That's my story, I'm afraid. Yeah. Well, hopefully I can lighten the mood in some way. (laughs) Um, In 2010, a 13-year-old boy was struck by lightning on the 13th. What's more, 
When the first responders began treating him, they noted the time of 1.13, which is 13.13 military time. If the team would have known what his day was going to be like, he probably would have spent Friday the 13th at home instead of going to the Lowestoft Seafront Air Festival where the accident took place. Despite his rather unlucky day, he did have some good luck as well. He only suffered minor burns and wound up making a full recovery. Oh, good. That's oh, a happy yeah. end. Yeah. Well, you know, as much as being struck by lightning could be happy, it had a happy end. Can you imagine that, yeah, though? Yeah, exactly. 13-year-old lad, struck by lightning, Friday the 13th at 1313. Mental. That's mad, isn't it? What are the odds of that? I'd say uh, 13 to 1. <laughs> <laughs> comedy girl, comedy girl. I don't know how odds work, but uh, let's roll with that. Anyway, let's wrap it up. We hope you enjoyed our little Friday the 13th segment. Yeah. And yeah, catch us wherever you get your podcasts. Stay safe, guys. Especially on a Friday the 13th. Yeah. Don't kill people. Definitely not on a Friday the 13th. And keep it weird. Always on the Friday the 13th. Bye. That was weird. Shh. Listen, there's a voice hidden in the static. Anata no yome wa ich jikan son juha kudas. You have one. Listen to me, Calvin. We always unlock the door and go on about how many locks there are, and we keep talking about the city we're moving here from. You mean Corpus Christi? I've never been to Corpus Christi in my life. No! We didn't come from there. We died. We hit an 18-wheeler driving over Fancy Gap in the fog. No. We drove off an embankment. I was driving, and it decapitated me. You died of a heart attack during the accident. This isn't the Viceroy truck stop. They shut it down after someone overdosed on heroin in the men's room. Plus a deadbolt. And a chain. And a heavy latch. Don't you remember? You watched me die. I never told you, but I was pregnant with our- I'm wondering if this neighborhood is as safe as Mr. and Mrs. Fukuda led us to believe. Babe, in this market, beggars can't be choosers. Looks like the Fakudas left some furniture behind. At least we'll have a love seat to sleep on while we wait on the movers to arrive. I think I'll stick with the air mattress. I can't believe they left us high and dry like this. We've always had such good luck with Delray movers. I don't know how we'll manage. I swear to God, I've got to be at work on Monday morning. Now is when I find the radio. Except, it isn't always a radio. The last time there was a child's record player, the kind that comes in a little briefcase. It was one with a picture of Hopalong Cassidy on it. Whatever that is. This time, it's a box. What kind of box? Dunno. It's small. About the size of a music box. It looks ancient, though. Japanese, judging from the characters. There's a handwritten note next to it. 
It's in Japanese, too. It says the thirteenth hour is upon us. I didn't know you could read Japanese. I can't. Turn it off. You can't turn it off, but I must always tell you to. The voice in the static. I don't hear it anymore. It kept telling us how long we have to live. It said we had 13 hours to live, but that felt like a billion years ago. And besides, we're already dead. We just don't know it yet. You have been listening to Rogue Transmissions, Friday the 13th. Rogue Transmissions was produced, edited, and directed by J.T. Hosack and Edward October. The 13th Hour was presented by Octoberpod and written especially for Rogue Transmissions by John Iger. It starred M.J. McAdams and J.T. Hosack, with special guest stars Jen and Cam, hosts of Our True Crime Podcast. Original song, Nighttime Right Time, written and performed by Chris McCready. You can watch Octoberpod home video on YouTube or listen to Octoberpod AM wherever you get podcasts. Find Octoberpod on the World Wide Web at octoberpodvhs.com. The Origins of Friday the 13th was presented by Reverie True Crime Podcast, hosted by Paige Elmore. You can find Reverie True Crime at Reverie Crime Pod, that's R-E-V-E-R-I-E, on Twitter. The Reverie Podcast on Instagram and on Facebook at Reverie Crime Podcast. Sam Patch, The Final Leap, was presented by The Brew Crime Podcast, hosted by Mike and JT. You can find them at brewcrime.com and on all social media platforms at Brew Crime. The Salish Feet Mystery was presented by The Curious Cat Podcast, hosted by novelist, podcaster, Jennifer Holtz. You can find Curious Cat Podcast at Curious Cat Pod CA on Twitter, Curious Cat Podcast on Facebook, and on Buzzsprout at CuriousCat.Buzzsprout.com. The Lake Bottom Murders of Finland was presented by the Serial Napper Podcast, hosted by Nikki Young. You can find the Serial Napper at Serial underscore Napper on Twitter. Nikki Young Serial Napper on YouTube, Serial Napper on Facebook, and Serial Napper Nick, that's N-I-K, on TikTok. A plane crash, an S&M murder, and a lightning strike walk into a bar was presented by Spine Chillers and Serial Killers, a true crime, paranormal, comedy podcast hosted by Emma, Tash, and Becky. You can find Spine Chillers and Serial Killers at SCSK underscore podcast on Twitter, Spine Chillers and Serial Killers podcast on Facebook, and SCSK underscore podcast on TikTok. You can listen to all of the Rogue Transmissions featured here wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed this transmission, kindly leave us a five-star rating. 
tell your friends about the wondrous things you heard. The man who spoke to you was Mr. Edward October. (laughs) 